Nick, I'm almost done with Gynonk, which is really fortunate because I'm going to be going on to OB. However, I am a little bit nervous about having to teach my junior residents how to ultrasound. Well, did you know that you can head on over to the obgproject.com and with your chief resident skills, get free access to their second trimester ultrasound atlas? If you're a chief resident like Nick and I, you can go on to the OBG project and sign up for OBG First completely free. OBG First is a subscription that allows you to build your very own reading library on the OBG project website, and they also send you up-to-date emails with the latest guidelines and research. All of their content is summarized into easily digestible bites, bulleted information, so that way you can take it on the go, whether you're on your phone, on the wards, or hanging out at home. If you want to find out how to sign up for OBG first, go ahead and go on our website at www.creogsrivercoffee.com. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Creogs Over Coffee. Today we have with us Dr. Jenna Emerson, who is a gynecology oncology fellow at Women and Infants Hospital and Warren Albert Medical School of Brown University, who is going to talk to us today about gestational trophoblastic disease. Welcome, Jenna. Hi, thanks. All right, Jenna, I guess to start off, what are our learning objectives for today? Um, well, our learning objectives are firstly um, to know when to suspect gestational trophoblastic disease after molar pregnancy to understand how one goes about actually diagnosing gestational trophoblastic disease and what are the key steps in management of GTD. So Jenna, can you just kind of give us some of these definitions of the terms that we'll be using today? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, one of the things that is most confusing sometimes about GTD is that there are a number of acronyms and a number of um, different sort of pathophysiologic entities that all fall under that um, broad umbrella term. Um, so I think it helps a lot to kind of define what is what exactly. Um, so overall, it's helpful to know that GTD is the same as GTN is the same as GTD. Those are all the same thing. So that's gestational trophoblastic disease, gestational trophoblastic neoplasia, and gestational trophoblastic tumor. Those are just all synonyms that you'll see um, written different places in the literature. I'm going to just generally use the term GTD, which again is the same as all of those, but is really encompasses um, both complete and partial molar pregnancies, as well as invasive moles, gestational choriocarcinoma, and placental site trophoblastic tumor. Every general OBGYN at some point is going to be exposed to molar pregnancies. They're, you know, not terribly common, but they're not so rare that you'll never see one. Um, malignant gestational trophoblastic disease is kind of a separate category from there. So malignant GTD would include then invasive mole, gestational choriocarcinoma, and placental site trophoblastic tumor. So that's the um, sort of bad actor versions of what moles can turn into, but, but many of them don't. And I think... Um, you know, if there was one point that I wanted to really get across by the end of this talk, it would be that um, it's it's not uncommon for people to find these topics confusing. And especially when you get into the actual malignant GTD, um, they can be somewhat difficult to treat and, and can pose a lot of diagnostic dilemmas. So if, if you are dealing with a case that seems particularly difficult or challenging, um, there are some really excellent regional treatment centers that have been shown to have much improved outcomes if they're the ones treating these diseases. So um, at least here in New England, I know that um, at, at the Farber, Brigham and Women's, they have an excellent um, GTD center there. 
Excellent. Good to know. But I guess, Jenna, we'll start off kind of with what we will, as you said, all encounter at some point, the GTD that is molar pregnancy. Um, tell us a little bit about that. So molar pregnancies are, um, like I said, something that every uh, general OBGYN will probably come across. From like a, an epidemiology sense, the, the prevalence of molar pregnancies can be estimated um, by studies looking at therapeutic abortions, where they found that one in 600 therapeutic abortions um, actually was a molar pregnancy. So molar pregnancies happen only about 20% of the time will they actually lead to malignant GTD and require some sort of treatment. A lot of distinction is made and a lot of attention is sort of paid in test questions and things like that to like the differences between complete and partial moles. So there absolutely are differences, although I will say that once you actually get to the point of being invasive um, GTD or malignant GTD, it doesn't actually really matter that much if it started from a complete or partial mole with respect to how you're going to treat it. Jenna, can you just talk a little bit about that difference in complete versus partial moles, just because that is probably going to be a test question that we get on yeah, the pre-ogs? Totally. Yeah, So I think about it in two kind of broad categories when I'm trying to separate the two out. So one, you need to know the karyotype differences between the two. And then two, you need to know the clinical features. And so the karyotype difference, I don't really have a great like mnemonic for remembering that. You just have to know that partial moles are the ones that are going to um, be triploid and complete moles are diploid. So karyotype is one thing you need to know, but then the clinical features are a little bit easier for me to remember. Um, so I just remember that complete moles are like completely weird and partial moles are only partially weird. So, um, you know, there's a really great table in the uh, uh, practice bulletin about GTD, um, but as, as a general sense, any of those pathology elements like fecaludine cysts and uh, levels of HCG and likelihood of having uh, medical complications are all going to be more likely in the completely weird group, the complete moles. Another thing that, that you know, sort of comes up from a um, testing standpoint or something people often talk about are the crazy things like um, thyroid storm, you know, really early HELP syndrome or really early severe preeclampsia, um, massive life-threatening hemorrhages, things like that, that are kind of the horror stories we hear about molar pregnancies. It's true that all of those things can happen, although the reality is that since the combination of um, really easy access to ultrasounds and then very... Um, you know, highly sensitive pregnancy tests that are also cheap and accessible to patients everywhere um, means that these are usually diagnosed at relatively early gestations, mostly in the first trimester. And so those um, more crazy sequelae, we don't really see as much anymore, at least in the U.S. <laughs> so we'll definitely put that um, table on our website from practice bulletin number 53 on GTD. Um, I guess, Jenna, so we know that molar pregnancies, the general presentation starts out as first trimester bleeding and then you get into the whole ultrasound thing with the snowstorm appearance mm -hmm. or whatever people describe it as. I guess I heard cluster of grapes, snowstorm, what have you. Um, but I think where people get confused and where the real meat of things come from in terms of the creogs is probably how do we manage um, molar pregnancy yeah. and GTD. So where do we go after we recognize a mole? So that's a great question. The easiest or first answer I would give, what the place I always go is actually to the NCCN flowchart. Um, so the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, um, it's free to be a member. You just go to nccn.org and they have these amazing flowcharts of information about how to manage a lot of things related to cancer and cancer treatment, um, including uh, molar pregnancies and GTD. And the information is really very similar to what's in the ACOG practice bulletin, but it, I, I personally find it to be like very easily organized and 
it really just walks you down the steps nicely. Um, so I always go straight to that to make sure that I'm hitting all the right points. But the big picture is, um, you know, you need to do a complete history and physical of the patient, um, get a chest x-ray to make sure that it hasn't uh, metastasized or, you know, gone to the chest, um, and then get a series of labs. So you're going to get a beta, um, a CBC, a, a BMP, and a type in screen. Um, and so that's all just kind of the standard baseline information you're going to get from there. Um, and then as long as you don't identify any disease in the chest on your chest x-ray, your next step is usually going to be surgical management. Um, so at that point, you offer the patient either a DNC or um, this is kind of an important point. It's actually a totally appropriate uh, opportunity to offer a patient a benign hysterectomy as well um, because you know, the ongoing process of following a molar pregnancy is can be arduous for patients. Um, and, you know, for some people that there are barriers to being able to do that. Sometimes people just, you know, are wanting to have a hysterectomy anyways. And to put them through all of those risks of um, the DNC and then all of the follow-up isn't really necessary. So um, you can definitely off offer a patient hysterectomy at that time too. So let's say your patient is someone who, um, desires future fertility, so they do actually want to go through with the DNC. What should we do after that? So after um, the DNC, the next part of the process is just is following betas for some time. And so I've always had a hard time like remembering the specifics of the algorithms because my brain just doesn't work in terms of like numbers like that. So I kind of break it down into three steps. First of all, you want to make sure their betas are going down. Next, you want to see their betas get to undetectable. And then you want to make sure they stay undetectable for a while. For the first period, you want to have them declining by at least 10% every week over the course of three weeks. Um, so that's going to ultimately be four actual you know, test values because it's going to be day one, seven, 14, and 21. But the concept is over a three-week period of time, at least 10% declines. From there, you're going to follow it until you have three weeks in a row of undetectable betas. And then once you get to that point, um, you can space out your labs to every three months repeated twice. So that's a six-month period overall. I tell patients at the beginning of all of this that it's about a nine to 12-month process, which is you know, probably an overestimate, but especially in a patient that desires fertility or is, you know, this was a desired pregnancy and they're hoping to get pregnant again right away, you know, that can be a real bummer for them. And I think it's, it's really important to set that expectation from the beginning because uh, they can get really frustrated with the long follow-up period. Um, and one point that's always that, that had confused me in the past because we say um, so 10% every week over the course of three weeks, and then you say three weeks in a row of undetectable. So once you get to that steadily declining 10% decline over four checks, then you can space those out. It doesn't have to be every week. But once you have an undetectable, you can go back to every week just because you're proving that it's negative. Got it. All right. So I guess what if this doesn't happen though, Jenna? What if you know, we say have somebody who is declining nicely to start and then that beta sort of plateaus or it starts rising again. What should we be thinking about then? Yeah, so that's when we're shifting over um, from just the general category of, of GTD and a molar pregnancy into malignant GTD. Um, so to diagnose postmolar malignant GTD, which is one type of malignant GTD, but not all types, you have to have a, a plateau of betas over three weeks um, or an increase of greater than 10% over two weeks or a persistently positive beta for six months after their evaluation. So those are like, you know, very specific parameters. Again, this is why I think it's helpful to just know where the NCCN um, guidelines or the practice bulletin can guide you if you want to double check that. Um, but basically, the premise is either it's it's not steadily declining or it did decline and now it's going up or it's persisted for a long time. 
So let's say that happens and you have a patient whose beta is either going up or staying the same for a while. What would you do at this point if you think that they have an invasive mole? Yeah. So the first step um, in working up an invasive mole or a you know persistent mole is um, to do some staging and risk stratification. Um, and so you know staging really the question is um, is this confined to the uterus or is there any extra uterine disease? And in order to answer that question, you're going to do a history and physical exam because you might find something on exam to help you um, you know to to pinpoint something. You're going to do a chest X-ray because if it's going to go anywhere, the most likely place is the chest, and then a pelvic ultrasound to um, you know evaluate whether, you know, how much burden of, of tissue there is there and to see if there's anything um, that appears extrauterine. And so that's the sort of quote unquote staging. It's not a true staging process, but the question, you know, of a- answering the question of whether or not it's confined to the uterus or not. If it is in fact confined to the uterus, your next step is going to be to do a WHO risk score that stratifies the disease into low and high risk categories. Oh, and we'll post the WHO score on our website. As many of you guys probably know out there that it- score requires a lot of different components and it ultimately adds up to a number again as jenna said that puts it low risk or high risk jenna what about the follow-up from there so if we stratify somebody as low risk what do we do yeah so um for low risk disease um the the first options the first things that you should offer the patient are again i'm going to go back to offering hysterectomy as an option um because at this point um you know the the alternative is a long road of treatment and follow-up so hysterectomy would be appropriate um or the next thing you can offer the patient is a repeat dnc and i think it's important to note that that's a bit of a of a shift or a change in practice over the last few years so the traditional teaching was always that when you diagnosed an invasive mole you should never reevacuate the uterus um because of the risk of of at the time of your DNC. Um, But just during the course of my residency, actually, that changed. Um, There was a prospective clinical trial published um, in 2016 that showed that if you offer patients with an invasive mole um, a repeat DNC, you actually have about a 40% chance of completely curing them and avoiding chemotherapy. Um, So it's it's totally worthwhile um, because there's a, you know, at least 40% of patients you'll be able to spare ongoing treatment. So it sounds like from what you're saying that if you offer them a repeat DNC, you're going to have to continue to follow their betas again. Yeah, exactly. So if you do the repeat DNC, then you're going to follow betas um, the same way that you would have followed them or were following them for the molar pregnancy. Um, And then if their betas don't resolve, so if they don't follow all of those same patterns, you move forward with chemotherapy. Um, What would that chemotherapy be for low-risk patients? So uh, patients with low-risk disease get treated with single-agent chemotherapy. You can choose between um, either methotrexate or actinomycin D. This is probably, I would say, maybe more information than the general gynecologist or than you might need to know for CREOGS, but I feel like I'd be a, a bad gynonc fellow if I didn't drop a GOG number. So GOG-174 um, showed us that actinomycin has um, a higher complete response rate than methotrexate, but it is more toxic. Um, and we also know from other studies that um, if one single agent treatment uh, regimen fails, you have very high cure rates when you just switch over to the other single agent uh, regimen. So it's kind of a toss up between those two. So for low-risk disease, single-agent chemo. Um, for high-risk disease, you go to Imico, which is a multi-agent therapy. I think, you know, we've talked a lot about the management of invasive moles. What about um, management or diagnosis of things like choriocarcinoma or placental site trophoblastic tumors? 
Yeah. So those are the other two main categories of malignant um, GTD. So if you're making like a flow chart, malignant GTD being the um, the sort of overhead um, invasive mole is one category. And then you have choriocarcinoma and placental site trophoblastic tumors. Um, so choriocarcinoma um, can happen from either term pregnancies, molar pregnancies, or um, non-molar early pregnancy, like uh, any any pregnancy loss, so like a first or second trimester loss. So about half of the time choriocarcinoma follows a term pregnancy, about uh, a quarter of the time it follows moles, and then a quarter of the time other pregnancies. And some of the characteristics about choriocarcinoma that are distinct um, from invasive GTD, um, one is that it does... Um, very quickly uh, move on to systemic metastases. It has, um, you know, seems to have very good access to the to the um, vascular system of the body, and so it spreads quickly. It's also very chemoresponsive, um, which is a good thing. But um, it, patients suspected of choriocarcinoma um, have more of a staging workup at the beginning because of that risk of early spread. You do use the same WHO category or WHO category risk stratification to decide what kind of chemo you're going to give the patient. So low risk is still going to get single agent chemo and high risk is still going to get Imico. But the really important thing that people should know about choriocarcinoma is that these are really, really vascular tumors. So it's a very classic test question um, where they will, you know, kind of set you up and, and make you suspect choriocarcinoma. And then you do your speculum exam and you see this like beefy red um, vascular appearing lesion in the vagina do you biopsy it? Um, and the answer is always no, because they bleed like crazy. Um, so really, really important to know if you suspect a choriocarcinoma, you should never biopsy it. And I know that one of the other places that choriocarcinoma can go to outside of the chest is to the brain. Like the classic teaching is like lung, brain, and bones. Mm -hmm. um, so what happens if you have brain meds? Yeah, so um, brain meds do go into the WHO um, risk stratification um, model. Um, and when we do identify brain meds, it's really important um, to treat those aggressively from the very beginning. So it's recommended that neurosurgery be consulted right away and that measures are taken to decrease the risk of edema and vascular hemorrhage. Um, so mostly that's going to mean things like steroids, uh, potentially whole, whole brain radiation therapy, and higher dose chemos, just because it's, it's such a high risk for, risk for intraparenchymal hemorrhage. And what about this rare stuff, this placental site trophoblastic tumor, epithelioid trophoblastic tumors? These are things that I feel like you only seen throughout on creogs or yeah. when you're on a gynonc rotation. Yeah, that's very true. Um, so they're, they're both super rare, placental site trophoblastic tumor and epithelioid trophoblastic tumors. Um, they can follow any sort of pregnancy. They're most often treated with hysterectomy. That's kind of the standard um, teaching is that you go, move, go straight to hist um, as they're uh, less chemo responsive than the other malignant GTDs. And, and really the most important thing is that they get referred to uh, GYN oncology for more advanced management because they're just very unusual. Um, Jenna, do you have any more like tips or like anything that you want to talk about with regards to any weird presentations of these diseases? Yeah, um, that's a great question. So there are some things that can be um, kind of challenging in diagnosing um, moles and malignant GTD. So one area in particular that um, it can be easy to miss or to have a diagnosis delay in um, GTD would be after a non-molar pregnancy. So if you have a patient that has, you know, a six-week missed AB and they have a section DNC and all of the cytogenetics are normal, it would not really be a, a patient that you'd be following or suspecting GTD in. Um, so that's most often going to present as persistent um, abnormal uterine bleeding 
more than six weeks after the pregnancy. Um, so if that's the case, um, you should be checking a beta to make sure that they don't either one, have a new pregnancy or two, have, um, have a persistent problem. And so that's most frequently going to be choriocarcinoma, but could also be um, any of the others as well. It's just important to follow betas in a patient like that uh, when you don't really have a way to distinguish normal pregnancy from or new pregnancy from uh, persistence. I've heard too that like choriocarcinoma can kind of come out of nowhere. Uh, yeah, so that's absolutely true. Choriocarcinoma can be really challenging to diagnose. It's been reported to have um, pre presented in pretty much every site in the body um, and is uh, one very, you know, high on the differential list of possible etiologies for a malignancy of unknown primary in a reproductive aged woman. Um, and so when that's the case, when you have a malignancy of unknown primary, the best way to evaluate um, or sort of rule out choriocarcinoma would be to get a serum beta. Um, of course, they could be pregnant and have a malignancy of unknown primary. So usually if it's choriocarcinoma, um, the beta is going to be well above the discriminatory zone. So you should also, if it's positive, then get a vaginal ultrasound. If you don't identify um, an intrauterine pregnancy in someone with a beta, you know, a high beta, then, then that's your explanation. Is it ever possible, Jenna, for people to have like a fake elevated beta HCG? Like someone who comes in and they're like, um, you know, they had a negative pregnancy test at home, they have a negative pregnancy test, and then for some reason they get like a serum beta and it's like, you know, 100,000. <laughs> yeah, um, that's, a, that's a good question. So there are a couple of like trick ways that you can have a positive beta. Um, there's actually a number of, of trick ways. The two that people are most likely to encounter, um, one would be what's sometimes called a phantom HCG, um, which is due to heterophile antibodies. Um, and this takes you back to like immunology classes in medical school in order to, um, to understand it. So basically what happens is you get a positive serum beta um, because you have somewhat nonspecific antibodies that are floating around in the the body that are binding to um, other usually animal-based antigens. And then the serum beta um, test is done with a sandwich assay. So you have your antigen um, that's in the serum, and then a primary antibody detects the antigen, so an, an antibody to HCG, and then a labeled secondary antibody detects the primary antibody. Um, and so if the secondary antibody is is identifying with something that's not actually beta HCG, um, then you can get a, a false positive. Um, and so there's a bunch of ways that you can identify that that's what's happening. One would be if you have a positive um, serum, but you have a negative urine um, uh, pregnancy test. So the antibodies aren't shed in the urine, but a beta HCG protein should be. So um, so if they have positive serum, negative urine, then you know that's a, that's a heterophile antibody. Um, you'd also see that the value doesn't decrease with serial dilutions. Um, or you could send to a separate lab where they might use a separate secondary antibody um, that wouldn't have the same cross-reactivity. The other place that we see a false positive uh, or, you know, false positive in the sense that it doesn't represent a pregnancy um, positive beta would be usually in, in a postmenopausal state or in women that are on chemotherapy, you can actually get detectable levels of beta HCD pr production from the pituitary. So the, the pituitary gland will just actually make enough beta that it's detectable. Usually it's five or lower, um, but it can sometimes be um, up in like the 15 to 20 range. And so I've seen that really throw off a patient's, um, you know, planned GYN surgery, for example, when they come in 
and have a positive beta and they're like, I haven't had period in five years. How is that possible? Um, and the way that you can confirm that that's the case is by checking an LH. If their LH confirms that they're postmenopausal, then you know they're not ovulating. They couldn't have gotten pregnant um, and that this is pituitary HCG. And Jenna, during this follow-up after a beta HCG, I guess one thing that could happen is they could get pregnant again, right? Yeah, that's a total, definitely, definitely that's a total true risk. Um, so it's really important during this process that you have the patient on really good, uh, some good form of contraception. Um, so, you know, if that's an IUD some for, or some other form of LARC or um, if they're compliant with Depo, but you really, really want to counsel the patient about the importance of avoiding another pregnancy um, because that can get really sticky to try to sort out what exactly you're dealing with. All right, Jenna, thank you so much for coming on to our podcast and talking to us about gestational trophoblastic disease. It's been very educational for me and I'm sure for our listeners. Yeah, thank you guys. Um, it has been a really, really an honor and a pleasure seeing you guys uh, grow this program. I um, was a chief resident when you guys were interns and it's really cool to see you guys as chiefs now. So um, thanks for the opportunity to participate in this. Love the full circle. <laughs> All right, Jay, why don't we summarize? Sure. So we first talked about the definitions and we introduced that gestational trophoblastic disease which is the same thing as gestational trophoblastic neoplasm, which is the same thing as gestational trophoblastic tumors, which encompasses a very wide variety of diseases, including complete and partial molar pregnancies, invasive moles, gestational choriocarcinoma, as well as placental site trophoblastic tumors. We moved on to talk about molar pregnancies after that because these are the things that we generally will encounter. 20% of these may lead to malignant gestational trophoblastic disease and require further treatment. We talked about complete versus partial moles again as the big test question. Again, karyotype-wise, partial moles are triploid, complete moles are diploid, and the clinical features, as Jenna so eloquently put it, complete moles are completely weird and partial moles are only partially weird. Take a look at our website for that practice bulletin table um, to take a full look at the clinical features. We then started to talk about presentation as well as initial management. Usually, barring all of the weird things, most people with complete or partial moles will likely present with first trimester bleeding um, as well as characteristic ultrasound findings like a snowstorm appearance. And initial management really should follow the NCCN guidelines. So you should get a full H&P a chest x-ray to make sure that um, there has not been metastasis to the chest, as well as labs, including a beta-HCG, a CBC, um, electrolytes, as well as a type and screen. And then you can offer your patient either a DNC or a hysterectomy. If the patient elects to have a DNC, then they should be followed with serial betas. If those serial betas don't happen to be declining um, per protocol, you now have a diagnosis of malignant gestational trophoblastic disease. You'll want to stage it according to the WHO categories and stratify it by low risk or high risk. Low risk, as we talked about, the management has changed recently where you can offer hysterectomy versus a repeat DNC. And if those betas don't resolve after that, you move on to single agent chemotherapy with either methotrexate or actinomycin D. If the patient's stratified as high risk, you're going to move on to an emico chemotherapy. We finally talked about choriocarcinoma and placental site trophoblastic tumors. Choriocarcinoma can result from term pregnancies, from moles, and even from non-term normal pregnancies. Choriocarcinoma does metastasize very early on and does require chemotherapy. And the classic question is that they are very vascular, so if you do see a lesion from choriocarcinoma, do not biopsy them. 
Finally, we talked about those diagnostic dilemmas. And as a reminder, if you are struggling with the diagnosis or treatment of these, consider referral to a regional specialized center um, or your local gynecologic oncologist. But some of these diagnostic dilemmas can include gestational trophoblastic disease following a non-molar pregnancy, choriocarcinoma presenting as a malignancy of unknown primary, heterophile antibodies or phantom HCGs, or phantom HCG as a result of postmenopausal or pituitary-sourced HCG. All right, so that about sums it up for us today. Once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So if you like the podcast today or want to give Jenna some love, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee, on Facebook at CreogsOverCoffee, and on Patreon, where you can give us some love and support at www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. Did you know we have an awesome website that lists all of our show notes, resources, and a show archive that's easy to search? CreogsOverCoffee.com. And if you want to hear a special episode or you want to make a correction to a current episode, go ahead and email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. 